Welcome to Stage Blether, a weekly podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 8, The Name of Terrorism. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar So, yes, I imagine you've guessed from the title. This episode continues the downbeat trajectory that we started out with last week uh, with our discussion of images and propaganda. But this is a topic, this week's show is a topic I think is incredibly important. I think it's incredibly important to talk about it now. Uh, And it's also something that I work on in my research. So that's why I'm doing it at the moment. In all likelihood, in fact, I think that we'll probably do a bunch of shows on terrorism, and um, maybe then this could be thought of as a primer. What I'm going to do in this show is I'm going to lay out a definition of what terrorism is, or try to do that, and then think about the ways in which terrorism and terroristic violence function, and are always designed to function as a species of performance. Um... I should also say that I am deliberately recording this show earlier than I ordinarily would, uh, about 2 o'clock on uh, Thursday the 23rd of June 2016, and it's the day of the referendum in which Britain decides whether or not that we want to leave the EU, or remain part of the EU. And the reason I'm doing it now is that a week ago today, Joe Cox, the Labour MP for Batley and Spen, was stabbed and shot to death in Burstall by a man who shouted Britain first as he attacked her. Now, there are debates going on in public about whether or not this murder can be considered as an act of terrorism. This event, as I'll explain in a second, is the reason why I'm doing it now, why I'm recording the show now. So, uh, before I do that, I've listened back to last week's show, and despite the fact that I kept saying, this is not a political podcast, clearly that episode was a you know a political episode, and it's likely that this uh, episode will be a political episode as well. Um, I got too emotional last week, and I think that I probably allowed my own uh, emotional relationship to the material I was talking about to cloud what I was talking about this time, and I will try and be a little bit more dispassionate. But it's inevitably going to have some elements of my own thoughts and feelings in as well. Um, but, yeah, so, and I don't really want this to turn into some kind of, like, personal rant, because my principal interest and objective here is to examine and engage with different aspects of theatre and performance. Um, now, so, yeah, it makes sense for me to try not to get too emotional. Um, what I want to do in this episode is think about what happens to violence when you label it as terroristic, or what happens to violence when you call it terrorism, when you give it the name of terrorism. And... Um, I am going to talk about Joe Cox. I'm also going to talk about the murder of Lee Rigby in 2013. Um, because I talk about Joe Cox, I am going to end up making a contribution to the to debates that are happening about whether or not her murder can be considered an act of terrorism. Um, and the reason I want to do the show now, rather than later, is that after tomorrow, Joe Cox's murder will be bound up in the results of the EU election. Because the guy shouted Britain first, because... Uh, the way in which her death has been framed as somehow a response to the current very, very, very fraught and actually quite poisonous debates that are going on about whether or not Britain should stay in in the European Union. Once that decision has been made, her death will indelibly be connected to the decision. Um, So by the time you listen to this, in other words, history will have forced you to consider the referendum results in conjunction with Cox's death. If Britain has voted to leave by the time you listen to this, does that mean that the murderer achieved his objective? 
And if Britain has voted to stay by the time you listen to this, does it mean that people were inspired by her murder to come out in greater numbers uh, or, or, or to change their mind about what they're going to vote? In either case, the murder has had an effect upon the outcome of that um, referendum. And, as a con and this is what terrorism does. It tries to play into broader narratives. It tries to use a death or violence in order to effect some kind of change in the world. And I don't want to have to make that kind of decision in this conversation. I'm going to have to do it like we all are. After tomorrow, I'm going to have to rethink Cox's murder in the in the, the light of the consequences of the referendum. But right now, I am actually... I can't do that because it hasn't happened yet. So, uh, let's start with the definition of terrorism. Terrorism, first of all, is nothing new. Uh, it's been People have been studying it for, in some form or another, for centuries. Uh, it's an important topic, and it always has been, because what terrorism constitutes is always a danger to an organised society. Uh, people have sought to understand it, they've sought to contain it, they've sought to counteract it, and sometimes they've even sought to try to prevent it. For this reason, there are numerous definitions on what terrorism is. There are billions of books that have been written on the subject, and a lot of them are quite contradictory. For these purposes, I'm going to use a definition of terrorism that's proposed by Jessica Stone and John Berger in a book that they wrote called um, ISIS, the State of Terror. Now, just as there are a billion books on terrorism, there are like 10 billion books on ISIS currently being published, most of which, I have to say, I've read quite a lot of them, most of which are not very good. But this one is. I'm going to put a list of uh, the good ones up on Facebook in case people are interested in you know following that up. But um, this is what Berger and Stern define as terrorism. They say... We define terrorism as an act or threat of violence against non-combatants with the objective of exacting revenge, of intimidating, or of otherwise influencing an audience. We define terrorists as non-state actors who engage in violence against non-combatants in order to accomplish a political goal or to amplify a message. Which is a fairly dense but quite a succinct definition. Um, uh, so what the salient points are, terrorism is an act or threat of violence, it has to be violent, it has to be against non-combatants, people who are not soldiers, it has to have an objective of exacting revenge, intimidating, or otherwise influencing an audience, that's significant, we'll come back to that. Terrorism is always about the audience. Um, terrorists are non-state actors, so in other words, they do not belong to um, armed forces, that, uh, or they do, do not belong to state apparatus, um, and they engage in violence against non-combatants in order to accomplish a political goal or to amplify a message. It's good. Um, and there are lots of different types of political violence. We should say this. Terrorism is only one of many different types of political violence. You can think of guerrilla warfare, for example, which is where you get... Um, it's got some similarities with terrorism, but it's generally, although not always, aimed at combatants. So... Um, uh, there's also things like state-sanctioned violence, such as uh, torture and murder. If you think of the extraordinary rendition programs that Britain and the US have operated in the 21st century against people, uh, you know, uh, suspects within the war on terror, where we would um, fly people out to countries where torture was legal in order that they could then be tortured and their confessions extracted, and then we would use the confessions in our prosecutions against them. Um, that's not terrorism because it is done by a state or state organisation. Now this is a really controversial thing to say and there may be people listening to this that completely disagree with what I'm saying. Um, bear with me and I will explain my reasons for doing so. We separate out political violence uh, and we try to maintain those separations for a number of reasons. One reason is to do with the way in which you respond. Now, if you're faced with people who are conducting a campaign of guerrilla warfare, for example, uh, and guerrilla warfare is generally rebel factions attacking a centralised power, usually concealing themselves and conducting surprise attacks and so on, well, then you're fighting a war. And if you're fighting a war, you're fighting warriors. And if you're fighting warriors, you fight them with soldiers. You employ an army in order to do so. 
if you are facing somebody who is kidnapping and holding to ransom people for political means and objectives, then you're not necessarily fighting the same kind of battle that you would be fighting if you were fighting guerrilla warfare. So you have a different kind of response. Um, usually, if you're facing kidnapping, then the kind of response that you would have is uh, either metropolitan, like a federal kind of police investigation would be, I, I imagine, the, the general response to that. Um, you also, by separating out different types of political violence, you look at the targets, you look at the people that are being targeted. Guerrilla warfare tends to target soldiers and combatants. Terrorists target non-combatants, people who are not uh, soldiers, people who are not warriors. And what this means for our definition of terrorism is that terrorists are not soldiers, they are criminals. And as criminals, they, they are treated, they are subject to different laws and they're subject to different kinds of reprisals as they would be if they were soldiers. The problem with terrorists is that often they, cons they consider themselves to be fighting a war. They conceive of themselves as warriors, but they act like criminals. And you can see, I imagine probably already how this is getting confusing. If we think about ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, uh, currently operating out of occupied territory in Iraq and Syria. Now, are these people terrorists or are they soldiers? And it's not an easy thing to answer. Most of the people that I respect who have been writing on the subject, people like Patrick Coburn, Barry Atwan, um, Sami Mubayad, uh, these, they will say that we need to draw a dividing line between ISIS and the organization, uh, ISIS, sorry, we need to draw a dividing line between ISIS as the organization operating out of Iraq and Syria, and the individuals and groups of people who carry out attacks around the world in the name of ISIS. We need to draw a separating line between the organization and the people who carry out attacks internationally in their name. The organization, because it functions as a state, and this is a controversial thing to say, Islamic State is in the name, and I know that a lot of people don't like the notion of Islamic State functioning as a state. Um, Loretta Napoleone calls it a shell state, which I think is quite a good term. A shell state is a state that uh, has all the appearance of functioning as a state. In other words, it has infrastructure, it has... Um, state apparatus and so on, but does not have the capacity to actually legitimize itself as a state, because Islamic State is not recognized as a state by any interna international bodies, but they think they're a state. They are, however, using a centrally organized armed force, or a series of centrally organized armed forces who operate openly as an armed force, and as a consequence, this, I think, and uh, borrowing again from Napoleone's argument, is that uh, indicates that they are in fact something more like a rogue state and they are not therefore terrorists. Also, don't forget, this changes how you are, um, it changes the rules as to how you are allowed to attack them under international law and of course how you then try them for war crimes. So Islamic State, I'm going to propose that the organization operating out of occupied territories in Syria and Iraq are not terrorists so much as they are a rogue state. But the people who operate independently on the terrain, you know, uh, in, the, in the world, um, in the name of ISIS, people who commit acts like you know the, the Paris attacks and so on, these people, according to the definition that has been put down by Stern and Berger, are terrorists. And that, of course, changes the way in which you respond to them. Rather than sending in the army, you send in the police force, you send in special armed forces and so on. And of course, that then changes the way in which you try them for crimes. So that's one of the reasons we separate out between different types of political violence. Another reason that we try to distinguish between these kinds of violence is that the quality or character that the names of those kinds of violence attach to the violence. So if somebody goes and blows up a bank or a school and you say that that person is a terrorist, then it changes the nature of the attack. It changes the importance, the significance, the quality of the attack. For one thing, it makes it bigger.
It makes it more significant, and it focuses our attention as spectators, not just on the attack itself, but on the organization in whose name the attack was carried out. Now, and this is incredibly important, it is possible to carry out a terrorist attack in the name of an organization, even if you have never belonged to that organization, never met or even spoken to a member of that organization. And the reason for this is simple. Terrorism is all about the spectacle. It is forged at the level of discourse. You call yourself a terrorist, you say that you're, you're committing an act in the name of an organization, and that is then what the discourse becomes. It is, what, it is how the deaths of whoever it is that you kill are treated as, this, as a consequence of a terrorist attack. It's all about focusing and shaping opinion. That's it. And the more people's attention you can get, the more scary you can make your organization, the better a terrorist you are. Now, this is a contentious argument, and there are people, there are examples in history of you know, people who've committed atrocities and then said, oh, it was in the name of this organization, the organization has then denied it. That, I'm not saying that, that that can't happen, but what I'm saying then is that that is also happening at the level of discourse. It is about shaping public opinion. You know, we as an organization do not want to be associated with this attack that was carried out in our name. We had nothing to do with it. But as an organization, you then have, you know, you can also claim attacks that are carried out in your name. Um, in some cases, actually, I remember hearing a story about, I think it was Ayman al-Zawahiri, um, must have been about 10 years ago, who was going through super, uh, tabloids and looking for unsolved murders and trying to claim them as uh, al-Qaeda attacks. Which, <laughs> um, And because terror, because, so because, because what we're talking about here is terrorism at the level of discourse, terrorism at the level of spectacle, this is why uh, people like me, who come from drama and theatre backgrounds, end up looking at terrorism. Because in some ways it is a species of performance. It is something that is designed as a spectacle and it is designed to affect and uh, particular audiences and effect particular changes in the world, thinking back to the subject of last week. So although it is a very grisly, very horrible species of performance and one that I wish did not exist, it does exist. And because of this, I think it is both helpful and important to consider terrorism through the lens of performance. And also, when you think about this is why Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Jabhat al-Nusra, why they're so keen to claim attacks whenever they happen against their enemies. Because it's free publicity. You know, somebody listens to your, uh, or reads your material online or whatever and goes and kills a bunch of people and says it was in your name. Provided you are happy with the people, with them killing the people that they killed, provided you know they weren't killing your friends or they weren't um, killing, in, let's say, for example, um, Muslim children, which might uh, scupper the hearts and minds campaign that, organizations like ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra are doing for the for, for international Muslim communities, provided that they're killing people you don't mind them killing, then it's free publicity. You know, why not claim it? Why not say, yeah, of course, you know, that they were working for us. You never met them, never talked to them, weren't even aware of their existence until they blew themselves up, but all of a sudden they're a member of your um, organization. And, uh, and it's vice versa. For the attacker, of course, there is a huge value in saying that you're doing something in the name of an organization because it increases your notoriety. And your status. So, uh, and think about this. In, in May 2013, um, two men, Michael uh, Ajibolajo and Michael Ajibowale, attacked and killed Lee Rigby, uh, who was a soldier, in Woolwich. And when they were questioned, they said that they'd done it in retribution for, for the killing of Muslims in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, superficially, uh, their attacks almost conform to Stern and Berger's definition. They were non-combatant, engaging in, act, in an act of violence for retribution and in order to send a message. They attacked a soldier, so they did attack a combatant, although he was off duty at the time, so technically we could say that he was a non-combatant, perhaps. Uh, they also did not 
identify with a particular organization. They did not say that they were necessarily Al-Qaeda or, or whatever. But the fact that they were committing act, violent acts in the name of Islam was at the time seen by some people in the British um, public sphere as confirmation that Islam as a religion is somehow implicated in acts of terror, that Islam itself could be considered a terrorist organization. Um, which is a very, very, very problematic consequence. And this... This is the thing is, this is the name of terrorism, this is what it does, it's incredibly charged. Because once you call someone a terrorist, you are refocusing, refocusing audience attention upon the organisation in whose name those acts have been committed. And because you do this, you also shift some of the responsibility for the attacks onto that organisation. Um, in 2013 then, so when Lee Rigby was killed, the fact that his attackers said that they were doing it in the name of Muslims was enough for some people, and one, one of whom was Nick Griffin, who's the uh, leader of the far-right British National Party, to openly condemn Muslims, and of course, you know, immigration as well, because that, that, that's the nature of that particular discourse, uh, as being somehow responsible for the killing of Lee Rigby. So it wasn't just the two men that did it, it was also that there was this broader religious organisation which uh, people like uh, Griffin and the English Defence League, uh, who then went on the rampage and attacked a lot of uh, British Muslims, Muslims in Britain, and uh, Islamic spaces such as mosques and madrasas, and schools as a retaliation for the killing of Lee Rigby. They felt that it wasn't just these two men's uh, responsibility, there was also the res responsibility of the religion in whose name the attack had been carried out. And this is what the name of terrorism does. It spreads the affect of death, it spreads the impact and the importance of death, and it also shifts or enlarges the responsibility for death or for violence away from just the people who commit the acts of violence and onto the broader organisations with whom they are identified. So this is where we get to Joe Cox. It is not, I think, a stretch to say that much of the criticism of the British, uh, British Muslims in the wake of Lee Rigby's death back in 2013 came from right-wing factions uh, within Britain. It wasn't just right-wing factions that criticised Muslims in the wake of Lee Rigby's death. Um, it would be a mistake to say that it was just right-wing factions, but the majority of active responses, particularly violent responses, that came as a against British Muslims as a consequence of Lee Rigby's death came from groups like the English Defence League, who are a far-right uh, group. Um, now, in the same way, in the last week, people who have defined Joe Cox's death as an act of terrorism have tended to come from the left, or at least not as far right uh, as Britain first. And this is where we get to a very complicated and difficult debate that is happening in which the death of Lee Rigby and the death of Joe Cox are um, kind of touchstones. They're kind of they're things that ignite a public rage that's already bubbling under and then they serve as a uh, as an icon or as a way of uh, lighting a spark for this broader rage. Now the guy that killed Joe Cox has been identified as having connections to a neo-Nazi group in the United States. He gave his name in court um, as death to traitors freedom for Britain. He shouted Britain first when he killed her. Members of Britain First, which is a far-right organisation that has become very prevalent in the UK in recent years, have been very quick to distance themselves from the killing. Now, in this instance, the group in whose name the attack was carried out do not want to be associated with that attack. And the reason they don't want to be associated with that is because they don't want to be affiliated with the death because that would taint them. That would taint them with the label of terrorism. And they want to operate as a legitimate organisation within Britain. 
I'm being really cynical. I could say, and perhaps people listening to this will get offended by that, it could well be that there is a, a broader sympathy for Joe Cox and a broader shock and um, upset at her death, and I'm certainly not saying that people within Britain First are not necessarily feeling shock and sympathy for her death. But in terms of an organisation having the option of or ha having a, a death carried out in their name, I think what, that it can't be argued that if Britain First was to uh, accept that attack, that they would no longer be able to operate as a legitimate body within the United Kingdom. So it is in their interests. Um, in fact, it's fundamentally within their interests, all morals aside, to distance themselves from the attack. Um, but this is where we get to the argument, because people on the left, and people on the right for that matter, who have identified Joe Cox's murder as an act of terrorism, have openly questioned why when Muslims such as Adebolajo and Adebowale, both men of colour, it should be said, and also both, uh, well, actually, I think Adebolajo was a convert, I'm not sure, Adebowale, when they committed murder in the name of Islam, they were automatically dubbed as terrorists in the British media. Whereas when Thomas Mayer, who is the man accused of murdering Joe Cox, shouts Britain first, the immediate response is to call him a lone madman rather than a terrorist. And this is what generally has been the public response within the, the papers. And in fact, there has also been a, a um, public backlash against anybody who has called the murder a terrorist act, saying that um, they are seeking to politicise this death, which is disgusting. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's also we should also mention that, in fact, uh, and this is going to be an inflammatory thing to say as well, but th there is, I think, a race element here. Um, Anders Brevik, who was the guy who went off and killed 76 people, most of them teenagers, in what became known as the Utoya Massacre in Norway. He was also branded as a lone madman, although he claimed to be um, operating in the service of far-right organisations across Europe against what he saw as the, uh, he called it the cultural Marxist threat, or the international Marxist threat. So what you get here is an intractable argument between factions on the left and factions on the right about what the discourses of the left and what the discourses of the right are doing. I have seen people, and I have some sympathy with this, who have shared images online of the very, very toxic anti-immigrant propaganda that has been produced in the EU referendum, in the kind of debates leading up to the referendum, and said that, that we have to at least start thinking about how this kind of um, propaganda might have tipped this man over the edge or helped to tip him over the edge and if that's the case then are we looking at an act of terrorism and should we be not shifting responsibility but enlarging responsibility onto the broader discourses of anti-immigrant sentiment that have been become commonplace for us and, and people listening to this show will know how I feel about that because I was very vocal about it last week. Um, but similarly of course people on the right will um, that have responded with this notion that a lot of the terror threats that have been faced in Britain in recent years, not, I mean, it should be said also, I'll, I'll talk about this in a minute, but, you know, 25 years ago, the, 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 the name of terrorist generally in Britain when it was applied would apply to people, uh, organisations like the Red Army Faction in Germany, or more likely the Irish Republican Army, who at the time were engaging in um, armed conflict with um, British soldiers, of course, and, uh, and British uh, police force as well in um, Ireland and in uh, the UK. I don't have an answer to the, these kind of problems, to these deep, complex problems that have been constituted by the name that we give to the, uh, the, the, the that we need to give to the kind of violence that killed Joe Cox. 
But we do have to give that kind of violence a name. We must remember that, as her husband pointed out, she would not have been killed had she not held the political views that she had, nor spoken about them in the way that she spoke. Her death was intended to be symbolic. It was intended to be spectacular. And I realise that the word spectacular sounds barbaric, but the impact of her... Consider the impact that her death has had on uh, global discourses. I mean, it's enormous. It is spectacular in the sense of big rather than, you know, spectacular as in the positive aspects we might give it. Her death was also, and this is where I wanted to record this show now, it was also intended to affect political change. Now, I don't know yet what kind of change it will have had or implemented. By the time you listen to this, we will be living in a world where the murder of Joe Cox has played into an event of national and international significance. Britain will have either voted to leave or voted to stay in the European Union, and her death will be reframed as a consequence. And this is the power and the potential of political violence. And this is why we have to think very carefully about what we call it. Now, there is a lot that I have not said in this episode, and I, want, I, I wanted to talk more about the ways in which propaganda of the far right has encouraged narratives of division and anger, uh, as I just mentioned. And I think, you know, although people are trying to deny it, all, the, there is some kind of connection between the anti-immigration sentiment um, that has been kicked up and the ways in which this can affect people uh, who are vulnerable, who perhaps... And I, I should also say that the, the, the way in which discourses about mental health change at times like this is often quite horrifying. You know, words like nutter and so on get banded around, and there's this idea that um, Mayer was congenitally violent, and he, he had uh, mental health problems, and therefore he, he can't be held accountable for his actions, and he certainly can't attribute his actions to organisations like Britain First. I wanted to talk more about that, but I haven't had time. I wanted to talk about ways in which different eras have remade the concept of terrorism for themselves. As I just mentioned, you know, 25 years ago, uh, when Margaret Thatcher was uh, Prime Minister, the people that she was calling terrorists would have been people like Red Army Faction and, and the IRA, whereas George Bush Jr.'s rhetoric um, related almost exclusively to Islamic, uh, violent Islamic fundamentalists. Uh, and of course, and also, you know, bear in mind, there's that thing that Thatcher called um, Nelson Mandela a terrorist as well. I didn't talk about any of that stuff because there's too much to get through in just thinking about the name of terrorism. There will be other episodes on terrorism in the future. Um, but I think next week I'm going to try and do a more upbeat uh, episode. I think I'm going to need to do a more upbeat episode. I'm going to the Anarcho Folk Festival this weekend, so I'm probably going to try and do a, an episode on that, I imagine. Um, I do need to issue a couple of corrections for last week's episode. Uh, I don't, I should say, I don't do these shows, I, I, I don't edit these shows, I do them all in one take and then I send them off to Cool Deep, who then puts the music in and cleans them up and, and sends them back, so I don't, uh, sometimes I, I get things a bit wrong when I'm speaking, and I listened back to last week's episode, and there's two things I needed to, to correct, one of which was, I said that there had been a swing to the middle and then there had been a, a kind of return to extreme politics on both sides in the US and the UK, now that was wrong on two fronts. I don't think that there has been a return to extreme politics on the left and right. I don't think that there is much of an extreme left in the mainstream. I think that we tend to look at people like uh, Corbyn and Sanders and so on and say that they are extreme left. But I, if, you, if you actually look at their policies, I'm not sure that... I, I don't really recognise this as hardline left-wing. The other thing to say is that I that it was a very Anglo-centric statement to make, that I didn't even mention the um, election of a far-right government in Austria, for example, or what has been happening with the Front National in France, or what's been happening with Podemos in Spain. So uh, I apologise for that. It was my entire, um, was my fault for being myopic. 
Um, now, that's the end of the show. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've found it uh, in some ways useful or informative. Um, as ever, if you want to respond, we are on Facebook as Stage Blather. Uh, I am on Twitter as at Sam Haddo. If you like the episode, please share it uh, on Facebook or uh, Twitter or, or wherever. Uh, if, you, if you're listening to it through iTunes, please... Uh, like it on iTunes, whatever that means. I still don't really know. If you did like the show, please listen to State of the Theory podcast, which is a podcast run by a friend and colleague of mine in India, Rai Chowdhury, and his friend Hannah Fitzpatrick, uh, both of whom are far more intelligent than I am and tend to talk about contemporary events with much more erudition and elan. Uh, I like the word elan. It doesn't get used often enough. The theme song is One More Broke Poet by Polly Edwards, whose website is brokepoet.com. And thanks again to Kuldeep for editing this show. Uh, and by the time you listen to this, we'll have made a decision on the referendum, which is um, rather terrifying. So all I can say is best of luck. Bye-bye. So fly when you're back and go dream overseas. Find out you're not quite that easy to please. Be slave to the tracks, be king for a day. Do you realize kings do have a price they can